Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Has it been a hectic few weeks for you? It has at my house, and, and you're probably in the same boat with, with festivals and family and flu and, and everything else that's been going around the last few weeks. And, and for my family, it's, it's finally coming to an end this weekend. I have a wife who's a teacher. I have a son who is student teaching. I have a daughter in college. And tomorrow they all go back to the regular, the regular life. But this weekend is hectic. And, and it, was, it was identified for me this morning when we woke up and I was heading out to come here. My wife looked at me and said, I am in trouble. I went to sleep early and I slept in. If I feel this bad today, how am I going to feel tomorrow when I have to get to school? And it's the same thing for our, for our weekend in worship as well. It's a hectic weekend for the church. Yesterday was Epiphany. We celebrate the wise men coming to see Jesus. And our church calendar tells us that today we celebrate the baptism of Jesus. We fast forward the story nearly 30 years in time from Saturday to Sunday. And I understand that it's probably easier to celebrate Epiphany in worship today through song because there's not a lot of swinging gospel tunes about John the Baptist that we could, that we could get into today. So I get to take us to the baptism of Jesus in our message. And our, our sermon text comes from the book of Mark, chapter 1, the very beginning of Mark. This is our sermon text for the day. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, if you're a rational human being, you have asked thousands of questions in your life. And this was really identified for me well when my son was three. My wife at the time was coaching basketball. She was in Portland for a game and we were living in Seattle. So I grabbed our three-year-old, I threw him in the car and I said, Matthew, we're gonna drive down and see your mom coach. And from Seattle to Portland, all he did was ask questions. <laughs> One after another after another. And at first I thought, I, I can keep up with this. I will just keep answering them until he gets exhausted. And probably an hour into the drive, when he asks me out of nowhere, Dad, what color is oxygen? <laughs> I gave up. <laughs> but you know what? He hasn't stopped asking questions, and we're the same way. It's been said that insightful people are not the first people with the right answer. They're the people who ask 
the right questions. Because you don't get right answers without asking the right questions. And I think there are no more important questions than the three that I see Mark answering in the beginning of this gospel. The first one, who in the world is Jesus? What an important question. The second, why in the world did He come? What is life all about? And the third question, what does it mean to follow Him? Now, Mark is probably the earliest of the gospels. And Mark answers these three questions not so much in an abstract theological or philosophical way, but by putting us in hard-hitting, quick-paced style into the face of the life and ministry of Jesus. Mark doesn't make as many editorial comments as Luke would make. Mark doesn't record the lengthy teachings of Jesus as Matthew does. He puts in front of you again and again the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus, until it's almost impossible to be neutral. You have to respond to Jesus. You have to respond to who He is. You have to respond to what He has done. You have to respond to what He says about you. You have to decide whether you're going to follow Him. You have to face the reality of His cross. You can't be neutral and read the Gospel of Mark. It was interesting to me to note that, that, well, yesterday was Epiphany and Three Kings Day. Today, with the baptism of Jesus, we are reading from Mark. But Mark does not begin with any of the Christmas story. He launches immediately into the declaration of the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ with 12 radical words. These 12 words, as they are translated into English, could not be more radical. I would argue that these 12 words cut a slice right down the middle of humanity because they are only actually, there are two classes of people living on earth, people who believe these 12 words and people who don't. If you believe them, they will change everything you think about yourself and about the very place that you would set your hopes and dreams. And if you don't believe them, you think they're ridiculous and delusional and not worth the paper that they're printed on. You know, I think that, that because we bring so much rich theology to these readings from the Gospels, we forget how radical these words would have been to somebody in the time that they were written. Someone who would read, pick up the, the, this word and read this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel, the good news. Many commentators say that this gospel, the way it begins, it alludes to the way the Bible begins, in the beginning. Now, there's a way that Mark is saying, what I am about to tell you, the story that I'm about to tell you, the person that I'm going to introduce you to has as fundamental and as seismic implications as the creation of the world did. As God in that moment creates the world out of nothing, the physical creation, this 
In the same way is a spiritual creation that happens, recreated by Christ Jesus. This is God remaking His world through Christ. It is the best of news. It is the gospel. It's the epicenter of our faith because there could only be one solution. God Himself needed to come in the form of a man. It had to be a God-man. The second Adam had to be the Son of God because if He was not the Son of God, He couldn't live that perfect life and be that perfect Lamb of sacrifice, satisfying the Father's anger and purchasing for us forgiveness and righteousness. There's a way in which the whole message of the gospel is wrapped up in these 12 words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's hope for us because God's ultimate answer is not to give us a set of principles, not to give us wise philosophy, not to give us a moral code. His ultimate answer is to give us Himself in the person of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. God's greatest gift to us is God. But I'm afraid, and and I know it's true for me, that these words become all too familiar. I've read that one of the dangers of a theological education is that the radical glories of the gospel just become so familiar to you that you lose your sense of awe. And in losing your awe, you lose your thankfulness. And in losing your thankfulness, you lose your worship. And in losing your worship, you're just a step away from idolatry. Where are you? Have you lost your awe? Now, what I love about Mark is is with his quickness, he takes his gospel from that introduction and rushes to the shores of the Jordan River, and he introduces us to it through the words of Isaiah. Mark continues, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Isaiah has predicted that there will be one, a prophet raised up who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And John did that in two ways. First, he did that by preaching a message of repentance and forgiveness, preparing for the ultimate gospel message of forgiveness in Jesus. And he did that a second way by actually being one who announced the coming of Christ and who baptized him but I want to look at the words that follow. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. What a strange dude. You know, what what an odd story. Why are we told that he was on a vegan diet and had a very strange wardrobe? What is this even all about? But think about this. This is the one that God had raised up 
to point us to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is now alive and well and on earth, beginning His public ministry. Think about it. This is a wild and woolly prophet out in the wilderness. Wouldn't you have thought if there was going to be a messenger, it would have been a chief priest? It would have been a prominent Pharisee. It would have been an esteemed scribe. It would have been a Sadducee. And also, notice the movement. The movement of the people out of Jerusalem, away from the temple, out to the wilderness to hear this message of repentance, confession of sin and forgiveness. You need to understand how radical this is. There is, in the ministry of John the Baptist, a stinging indictment of the religious order of the day. That what had taken over was a deadening business of faith. You know, maybe we could say, ladies and gentlemen, God has left the building. And so God raises someone outside the religious system of the day, outside the deadening business, outside its spiritual code, to call people once again to what every human being needs to do, confess how deep their sin is, and seek the one thing they can't earn, forgiveness. The contrast is significant. And you see, as far back as Isaiah, God railing against this external faith, this business of faith. And let me read to you from the opening chapter of Isaiah. From chapter 1, Isaiah writes, "'What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices,' says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats.' When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Later on in Isaiah, in chapter 29, we hear why God feels this way. Chapter 29, verse 13. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So God raises up a prophet, quite apart from the formal religious system of the day, to call people to repentance, confession, the seeking of forgiveness. We can't read this account without hearing its warning, because let's be honest, that external faith is not dead. We can sing with enthusiasm, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me, and yet still be an ungracious parent, an ungracious husband. We can unwrap the theology of the love of God, yet live selfish, me-oriented, unloving lives, stepping over human need and not being bothered at all. We can talk about reconciliation to God and yet be willing to live in broken relationships with our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our family. 
We can talk about the sovereignty of God, and we can handle that doctrine like few people can. But we try to move ourselves into control of situations and circumstances, and we worry all the time. You see, our heart of faith must not be our theological knowledge. It must not be external Christian habits. It must be a heart that loves and worships Jesus and is ruled by Him in all situations and all of the relationships of our daily lives. Could it be that God would come today and say to some of us, enough of your hymns, enough of your offerings, enough of your buying another Christian book. They are an abomination to me because you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Now, finally, Mark moves to John's message and what it means to follow Jesus. Mark continues, and he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John realized his position. He realized who he was. And he says, I am not the mighty one. I am not the answer. I am not the Messiah. I cannot offer you what you actually need. But there is one who comes after me who is the mighty one. He is mighty in power. He is mighty in grace. He is mighty in love. He's mighty in wisdom. He's mighty in redemption. He is what you need in your weakness and brokenness. You need His might. And then, both sweet and humble words, I'm not worthy to untie His sandals. It's a cultural reference. You know, at that time, the master of the house, when he would enter, the junior, the the lowest of the servants, the slave of the slaves, would run to the door, would get down on his knees, would unlace those sandals, and would wash those dirty, dusty feet. It was a despicable job. And John says, this one is so mighty, is so wonderful, I'm not worthy to do for him even the basest of things. And this is a prophet speaking. This is a man who is big time, and he knows that he is too low to even untie Jesus' sandals. You could say it this way. The only way that we will ever be in our proper place is if Jesus is first in His proper place. Humility is the product of worship. John knows what he's there for. It's not about him. It's not his story. It's not his moment. This is not John's moment. This is Christ's moment. And then he says something glorious. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was a preparation. It was a sign of what was to come. But it was limited to water baptism. And he said, the one who comes will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? He's saying, this one will deal with the ultimate damage of sin. What does sin bring? Sin brings death. And this one, by his Holy Spirit, will give life to you. That's something I can't give. 
You see, this introduction to the ministry of, the, of Christ is like a great knife that slices its way through the middle of humanity. Because if you believe these words, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Mighty One, the Savior who will give you new life, it changes everything about your life. It becomes the single most important thought and pursuit of your existence. It defines everything you think about. Everything you think about your world, everything you think about yourself, everything you think about others. Or, it's a silly delusion. How could you believe such a thing? I would ask you, what are you doing with Jesus? Does the love of Jesus Christ shape the way you think about your marriage? and the way you think about parenting, and the way you think about your life at school, and the way you think about your job? Do the radical claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ move and motivate you? Do you come with a deep sense of need, with the enthusiasm of worship, or could it be that you've lost your awe, and you need to confess that it has all become too familiar? too commonplace, that your life maybe isn't driven by worship of Jesus as it should be. May God help us celebrate the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and may that celebration not just be with a theology that we embrace and with hymns that we sing, but with every word and thought and desire and decision of our lives. Let's pray.